0: hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, uh, You've heard those well-worn words. Uh, They were penned by George Santayana. Uh, He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You may not have heard uh, the less famous but just as true words of a man by the name of Russell Napier. Russell Napier says, smart people keep doing dumb things. Uh, Napier is the founder of the Library of Mistakes, It is a real place, uh, a tiny little place that you can visit if you ever find yourself in Edinburgh, Scotland. It is a private holding, a private library, a collection of a few thousand volumes. And it's dedicated to documenting the financial catastrophes of the last few hundred years. So they've got books on on bubbles and crashes and recessions. They have a sizable collection Uh, on a man by the name of Charles Ponzi and on the schemes that were named after him. According to the library directors, they suggest that many students of finance today are plagued by a false sense of financial security for the future. They say that that false sense of security comes from trusting in the power of of abstract equations applied in a vacuum or, or the power of predictive analytics. And so their goal, they say, is to help the public understand not just how we think finance should work in the future, but how it actually has worked in the past. The library exists, they say, to improve financial understanding one mistake at a time. It makes you wonder uh, if Russell Napier has read much of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. In many ways, the Bible is the very first library of mistakes. They're in the scriptures, chronicled all the ways that sin has worked in the past. They're all cataloged and recorded and represented for our spiritual instruction, and nothing is spared. Not even the transgressions of our favorite biblical heroes. So you can open the pages of your Bible and you can find David's adultery and Moses' anger and Peter's cowardice and on and on the list goes. The Bible teaches us how sin has worked in the past. It also teaches us how God will work in the future. That's the other data set that's, that's cataloged in the scripture. Alongside the faithlessness of his people and the failures that they have in following him, the Lord also presents his uh, list of accomplishments, presents his commitment to deliver those who love him, those who walk according to his commandments. Today in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look to the Lord who is faithful to his people. We're also going to hear a warning about the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, true to form, we're, we're going to have three headings for our study today. Uh, and uh, in verses 1 to 5, first, we're going to see the emptiness of outward participation. Secondly, verses 6 to 11, we're going to encounter the danger of final destruction. And lastly, verses 12 and 13, the promise of God's faithfulness. Okay? Okay. The emptiness of outward participation, the danger of final destruction, and the promise of God's faithfulness. Now, before we get into that first point, really, we need to take a moment and to understand the context of the text that we have before us. This passage comes toward the end, not quite at the end, but toward the end of Paul dealing with a very serious question for the church in the first century. And the question was, can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. It shows up in chapters 8 through 10, this, uh, this burning question. Today, it seems like not so much of a burning question. It seems like sort of a, a silly controversy almost. In our minds, food is food. you got your, your macros and you got your micros, and so long as you're, uh, you're, you're not uh, gorging yourself, so long as you're not harming yourself by malnutrition, who cares what you eat? It's up to you, but this was a pressing matter in the ancient pagan world. For them, it wasn't so simple, especially when it came to the question of meat. In first century century Corinth, most likely, every butcher shop was connected to some pagan temple. Practically every ribeye, every pork chop you could find in the city was the byproduct of some daily sacrifice to a marble god or a goddess. Actually, that was a selling point it was a value-added proposition when you went to buy your food. It meant that if you were hosting a dinner, you could go and you could seek out livers that had been dedicated to Asclepius in the hopes that your guests would come and you could tell them, when you eat this, you'll be blessed with good health. Because, you know, it's been dedicated to that God over there. It meant that when you attended a dinner party, your host would most likely tell you proudly how you know, th- this roast had been offered to Dionysus. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you think very highly of that? Of course, in the ancient world, they understood what we sometimes forget, that everything we do has a spiritual significance. In fact, Paul's going to make that very same point at the end, uh, at the conclusion of chapter 10, verse 31. He'll say, so then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It all has a spiritual significance. It's not just inert. It's not just, I choose to eat this and you choose to eat that. Do it all, he says, to the glory of God. So on the one hand, you have this question of what to think about meat offered to idols. And as controversies in the church always do, on the other hand, it revealed the various opinions of the people uh, who were in the church. It reveals our our hang-ups and our sensitivities. So as you go through chapters 8 to 10, you get the sense that there were different opinions in the first church of Corinth about, about what to think about this issue. There seemed to be some who were so worried about accidental spiritual contamination through these things that they resolved never to eat meat at all. It would be better just not to partake than to accidentally eat something given to an idol. That was one opinion. There seemed to be others on the other side who thought it must be fine to eat idol meat in your own household, but if you go to a dinner party and someone points it out, Paul will make this point later, then then as a matter of principle, you you should abstain there. And and then there were the others, and this gets really to what chapter 10 is all about. There were others uh, who seemed to think that since idols were all just fake anyway, well, that it didn't matter what you did. You could do what you wanted. You could go where you wanted. You could go go right in and and up into the, uh, the pagan temples. You could sit down and eat in the presence of the idols because, after all, in that society, that's where the best food could be found. That's where the best conversation could be had. Most of all, that is where you could be seen as a fine and productive, upstanding member of society. It was a good thing to be seen there and to be there with the other people. You understand this is all a very, very simplified version of what's happening in these chapters. Uh, But uh, Paul has already dealt with similarly divisive controversies in this letter. We spent the last several weeks in our New Testament reading, reading through 1 Corinthians chapters 5 through 7, where Paul is dealing with the issue of marriage and sexuality. And again, there are... Various opinions about what to think about that in the church in Corinth. And so to some people, Paul had to say, actually, yes, it's good to be married. And actually, yes, it's good to have relations with your spouse. So whatever you're doing, don't stop doing that. He had to encourage them in that direction. To others, he had to say what we think should be unthinkable and unspoken. No, it's not good to visit the temple prostitutes. No, you can't just have relations with anyone you want. He had to tell them to flee sexual immorality. The same issue is happening with this question of idle meat. There are various opinions, and there's this religious controversy, and to some people on one side, Paul will have to say, chapter 10, verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the market, don't raise any question on a ground of conscience. Don't worry about it, he'll say. But to others we will need to conclude with verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, that's what's going on in the background. Paul is dealing with this question of idol meat, uh, and it leads into this question of real idolatry. And with all that going on behind, we can finally understand uh, what we see in our passage. That is, that there are some in the church who are apparently saying that since they had been set apart as Christians, they could go where they wanted, and they could do what they wanted, and they would be none worse off for it. There seemed to be some in the church saying that it was possible to participate in spiritual things without actually engaging with them in any meaningful way. And actually, Paul's argument is to agree with them to tell them that they're right. It is possible to engage in spiritual experiences without receiving any spiritual benefit. They're correct, but not in the direction that they might think. Notice the repetition of the word all in verses 1 to 4. He says, For I want you to to know, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. There was a spiritual experience that the nation of Israel went through. When the Lord brought them out of Egypt, he led them through the wilderness and they all became participants of it. They were delivered. They were directed. It tells us that the cloud of the Lord went behind them to protect them from the Egyptians. It tells us that the, the Red Sea opened up before them to, wake, to make a way of escape where there was no way of escape. And they all went through. They had a spiritual experience. They were all blessed with a leader. They were all connected to a, a mediator. Moses walked before them to teach them to shepherd them through the wilderness. He prayed for the people when they were in need. He stood between them and their God as a mediator for the people, and they all experienced that spiritual experience. He also gave them food and water to sustain them. Scripture tells us God gave them manna when they were hungry. It tells us that he poured forth water when they were thirsty, and Paul says those were gifts given by Christ himself to keep them walking on the way with the Lord. They all had a spiritual experience in the wilderness. And after that repeated emphasis on all those people and all their journey and all God's gifts, verse 5 falls like a hammer. Read it again. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. That is an understatement if you have ever heard one. With most of them, actually with all but two, God was not pleased. And their bodies, it says, really, a better translation, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They were overthrown. So yeah, Paul agrees with this logic. People in the church in Corinth, it's true, he's telling them, you can participate in spiritual experiences without experiencing a spiritual blessing. Uh, there is potential for empty outward participation even in the things of God. There are several unique things happening uh, in this passage. We can't look at all of them and some of the language that Paul uses and applies in uh, significant, surprising ways. One of the things that we need to see is the parallel that Paul is drawing between the experience of ancient Israel, the church in the Old Testament, and the experience of the church in the New Testament. Notice that he uses language of baptism. Baptism to explain their connection to Moses. He he speaks of Christ himself feeding the people in the wilderness. Just as Christ feeds us, the church, when we gather together at the Lord's table. There is spiritual food, he says, and there is spiritual drink. And in the wilderness, all ate and drank as a body together. Yet with most of them, God was not pleased. And we want to know, why not? What were they missing? What's the disconnect between verse 4 and verse 5? They had all they needed, it seems. They received these outward blessings. They were called by God. They were guided by God. They received his gifts in the wilderness. So why is it that they fell short? Why did only two, and not even Moses and Aaron, why did only two receive the promised land as their inheritance? Well, we consider our options. You know, of course, there are always some who say that if God is displeased with his people, that reveals a problem with God. There are always uh, going to be unbelievers. You know, the old nugget. They, they say that there goes that capricious, unpredictable God who can't be trusted. Let's say there goes that vengeful Old Testament God. There goes that God who's like that Katy Perry song, right? He's hot. He's cold. He's yes. He's no. He's blessing his people one moment. He's striking them down the next. And you can't trust a God like that. That's what some people will say, and believers will make that interpretation, but obviously we can't draw that conclusion. Certainly not from this text. Paul is not implying that there is unrighteousness in God. He's certainly not doing that. If he expects us to take him seriously down in verse 13 when he tells us God is faithful, the problem is not in God. Well, then maybe the fact that the people didn't please him reveals that, that there was a problem with their experiences. Maybe they didn't have enough. Maybe they didn't have them in the right way. Maybe there was something wrong uh, with their ceremonies, the things that they offered To the Lord, maybe they didn't read the instructions in the fine print. Maybe they missed a step or two. Maybe they weren't paying attention when Moses told them just how to cut their bulls and their rams and how to offer them up to the Lord. And maybe if they had learned how to jump through all the right hoops in all the right ways, well then maybe they could have been pleasing to the Lord too. We can't draw that conclusion either. The focus in verses 1 to 4 is not on what they were doing. The focus is on what they were given not their ceremonies, but their blessings, the things that God gave them. God gave them multiplied blessings. They could no more produce the wrong kind of manna than they could make the Red Sea part in the wrong direction. The point is not that they were missing any outward experiences. They received Perfect gifts from a perfect God to lead them through the wilderness and they had all that they needed. And yet, with all their outward blessings, they still missed the mark. Why? What were they missing? The answer is faith. They had all they needed on the outside, but they were missing something from the inside. Faith from the heart, faith as an internal orientation to trust God with all of their mind and all of their soul and and all of their strength. They were missing the grace to believe that the Lord was doing something for them that they could not find anywhere else. They were missing faith that united them to the Lord from within. Faith that could make them content in the gifts that only He gives. That's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 3 is a a very long uh, parallel passage that I almost preached today instead of this one. I chose not to, but it also gives us the chronicle of the people in the wilderness and their rebellion and their failure to enter into the promised land. It's another point in the New Testament where it looks back on the the experience of the Old Testament people uh, to teach us. Here was what was wrong and here was where they went astray and so don't do as they did. Well, Hebrews chapter 3 quotes Psalm 95, and there the Lord diagnoses the problem of his people. He says they are a people who always go astray in their hearts. The problem was not the Lord. The problem was not his gifts. It was the fact that they had an internal issue. And then the conclusion of it all, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, the writer says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's an internal issue. That's what the people were lacking. Not a compassionate God, not a faithful God, not the right outward ceremonies and experiences. They were lacking faith. And it leads us to understand that it's entirely possible, isn't it? It is entirely possible to participate in spiritual experiences outwardly while never participating with faith in the heart. And then we can press Paul's parallels to their logical conclusions. It is entirely possible to be baptized and yet never to be cleansed from your sins. It is entirely possible to say the right words and get through the session examination and eat and drink at the table and not to have any fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is entirely possible to be raised in a home where the gospel is taught and never to embrace the faith of your parents. It is entirely possible to visit churches and to sit in Sunday schools and to hear sermons and to see spiritual things and to be engaged with spiritual things and not to be any better off because of it. It's possible. It is possible to experience the emptiness of outward participation. Now, if all we have of the Lord is outward participation, we also need to be aware of the danger of final destruction, our second point today. Verse 6, Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Here he begins to apply uh, the experience of Israel in the wilderness to the temptations that face the church in the age of the gospel. These things are examples for us, he says, and I think there are a few lessons that he wants us to learn. The first lesson is that sin is always a matter of the heart before it ever reaches into our hands. Verses 7-10, to Paul is going to list four particular sins that seem to circle like vultures around the Israelites as they pass through the desert places. They seem to be always there, close at hand. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you can go back, you can read those things later this afternoon, you can see again the the stories that God has given us for our instruction. Spoiler alert, most of them come from Numbers. We see some of these things here, four sins in verses uh, 7 to 10. In Exodus chapter 32, we learn that the people became idolaters, not even two months out of Egypt. Still at the base of Sinai, the people became idolaters, and Exodus chapter 32 tells us that they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Play's a euphemism, you understand. They rose up to play, hint, hint, wink, wink. Let the reader understand. And it leads into the next verse. It relates the fact that in Numbers 25, they indulged in sexual immorality. They did so with the daughters of the Canaanites, they went to a sacrificial feast with the Baal of Peor. And all of these sins in the ancient world, as they are also uh, combined in the modern world, these sins went together, your idolatry and your immorality. And so they became idolaters. They engaged in sexual immorality. Numbers 21 tells us that they tested the Lord who was among them, Christ who was among them, he says, when they yet again complained about their culinary choices in the wilderness. Another combined sin, Numbers 14, they grumbled against God. They spoke against Moses and against his leadership. They almost appointed their own leader to take them all the way back to Egypt. Now in the coming months, we're going to look at each of those accounts individually, but the significant thing you notice about those sins is that all of them are things you can see, things you can point to. You can say, there it is idolatry and immorality and testing God and grumbling. These are things that Paul says would have a witness in a court of law. They're observable, things you can see and hear. And if we are not careful, we can reduce our definition of of sin to cover only those things that can be seen by others. It is the reason that so many people no longer accept the biblical teaching that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Why? Because sin has been reevaluated, it's been shrunk down, it's been truncated. It now includes only an ever-shrinking list of outward actions and accusations. It becomes only associated with those embarrassing things that everyone agrees are morally reprehensible. And if you haven't done those little things, then you can count yourself fine. Right, As long as you've never stolen a car or drowned a kitten or committed tax fraud, you can go on thinking that all the language in the Bible talking about sin has nothing to do with you. And in fact, even if you have committed all of those sins, you can find some therapeutic reason to rationalize why all those things aren't your fault. They've all been imposed on you, after all. All those things are just uh, they are they're the outflow of poor parenting. It comes about through environmental stresses. Karl Marx would say they're manifestations of your deep-seated alienation because your chance at self-actualization has been stolen from you by the bourgeoisie. The Bible teaches us to call all that stuff baloney, no matter how educated it's supposed to sound. Paul says evil is a matter of our desires. He says it has to do with what we want as much as it has to do with what we do. It comes down to the fact that we are bent in the wrong direction before the moment we take our very first breath on this planet. You know, Jesus said the same thing. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So all these things happened as examples for us. An example to teach us actually that we're exactly the same as they are. To teach us that First of all, sin starts with our hearts before it ever reaches our hands. The second lesson we need to learn from from these verses here is Paul wants us to know the inevitable destruction that comes from following those desires. So verse 11, he practically repeats himself. Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages There's a whole world of theology in that last phrase. Upon whom the end of the ages has come. It means a a lot. It means, on the one hand, as Gordon Fee says, that Jesus Christ marks the turning point of the ages. That he is the defining moment. That his ministry reorients and redefines what's happening in the world and what the world is here for. It reveals in a new way what God has been doing with creation. Fee goes on. He says it means that the whole Old Testament has been pointing toward its eschatological fulfillment in God's new people in Christ Jesus. It means that in him, all of creation can finally move toward its denouement. So there's a lot of theology in this phrase about the end of the ages, but there's also practical application. Because it means that if we are the ones who live in the end of days, as the New Testament consistently tells us that we do, if we are the ones who live in the time before the coming of the Son of Man, on the precipice of the final division of of light and darkness, and the righteous and the reprobate, it means that if we live in the time when the end of the ages has come, then we must reckon with the eternal destruction that hangs in the balance between faith in our Lord or rebellion against him. That's the other half of those verses, 7 to 10, the examples that we find there. Not only do they show us how sin works, but they show us what sin leads to. Notice the repetition. It's an extended exposition of verse 5. Verse 5, they were overthrown. Their bodies were were left in the desert. And how did that happen? Well, they indulged in sexual immorality, and 23,000 of them fell. He says they tested Christ, and they were killed by serpents. He says they grumbled against God. They were destroyed by the destroyer. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, and with most of them the Lord was not pleased. And Paul says these things are written down for our instructions. For those of us standing on the very edge of eternity. They're written down so that we might learn the cause and effect of evil desires and eternal destruction. Yet again, the letter to the Hebrews fills in the details. This time, chapter 12. If you remember, the letter is at the point where the writer is comparing The angel of God who spoke to the Israelites from Mount Sinai uh, with the son of God, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the sprinkled blood of Abel. There's a comparison. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Paul says we live at the end of the ages. He wants us to learn from Israel's example. He wants us to recognize that there is a possibility of empty outward participation so that we would know the danger of final destruction, but ultimately so that we would trust in the promise of God's faithfulness. This is where he's leading us. Verse 12, Paul issues a call to be watchful. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a reminder that, that Paul's warnings about sin and destruction, they're, they're not just for those atheists out there thumbing their nose in the direction of the church. They're also for those who are inside the church who have hung their spiritual hopes on the wrong pegs. Those inside the church who are trusting in themselves themselves rather than in God. His warnings are for those inside the church who feel self-satisfied with their spiritual blessings. It's for those inside the church who believe that their eternal future is secure because they themselves are strong enough to tie it down. It's for those inside the church who treat the Lord like he owes them something. In a past generation, a former century, this was known as the sin of carnal presumption. You find that in the Puritans very often, carnal presumption. Carnal presumption is nothing more than false assurance of salvation. And it's a false assurance because it does not look to where true assurance can be found, to the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Carnal presumption does not trust in the strength of God's Spirit who is able to help us in our weakness and our temptation. Instead, carnal presumption plunges straight into temptation, treats it as a little thing, treats it as something not to be thought highly of or thought much of. It presumes that, of course, we'll go on and and stand up under this temptation. No need for for prayer, no need for God's grace, no need for his guiding spirit. Carnal presumption assumes that sin can't touch us, or that if it does, you know, it probably won't matter very much for me. It believes that because we've faced the temptation before, we'll always be able to overcome it the next time. Remember that false sense of security about the financial future. This is what we're talking about, but in a spiritual sense. Thomas Brooks summarizes it well. He says, carnal presumption works at men to play with sin, to be bold with sin, to make light of sin, to walk on in the ways of sin, and such false assurance will never bring a man to heaven. It will never even keep him from dropping into hell. Well, the reality is that carnal presumption is a kind of sin that very often is realized far too late. Often it's the kind of thing we learn about from the news. We learn of it from those stories of Christians that, that we thought were very influential very strong in their faith, pastors and bloggers and and authors and, and little Christian celebrities in their own little circles, and then you find them following their noses and their desires and their stomachs into terribly avoidable sins, the kinds of sins that 1 Corinthians 5 could be applied to. Not even the pagans endure these things. I don't need to remind you of headlines that you've seen in the last few years. Christians whose books are probably on your shelves that you had to take them down and wonder, can I even read this anymore when you find out what's really going on in the lives of these people? Men who strengthened others who nevertheless did not believe their own weakness. Professing Christians who lurched into sin not so much out of ignorance as they did out of arrogance. This is a lesson Paul wants us to learn from Israel. And if we've learned this lesson, he wants us to see the answer for our carnal presumption, for the spiritual pride that thinks that we can't be touched by those sorts of things. Verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In other words, he's telling us, Sin works the way sin always has worked. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You can look back through the annals of history, you can see it everywhere. You can open the pages of the Old Testament, you can see it in the pages of the New Testament. A sense in which we shouldn't be surprised when sin shows up. Temptation is always on the lookout for the unsuspecting. Sin always lurks in the places where it thinks it can't be seen. It loves to take advantage of any opportunity when your guard is down, when your patience is expired. Sin is utterly, hopelessly, almost laughably predictable. That's what he's telling us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Sin always works the same way that it always has. But then again, so does God. God is faithful, he says. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he who makes promises always keeps them. He who sets standards always meets them. And he who provides a perfect sacrifice for sinners will not allow the blood of his son to be wasted. He says, Our God is faithful. He always welcomes those who cast themselves on his mercy. He's always waiting in the places where he promises to be found. He loves to display his strength in the lives of his children when their strength is spent and their human hopes have all but evaporated. Our God is utterly, hopefully, gloriously predictable. God is faithful, he says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You read those words and you imagine, how in the world could that be true? Because I felt temptation that surely felt like it was beyond my ability. How can you know this, Paul? Well, one thing, notice that what Paul's telling us is that God raises your ability to meet the challenge. It's true that you have been overcome by temptation. It's true that I have been as well. But somehow somehow when we get into the Christian life, we imagine that, that God's way of escape is to be done with the temptation altogether. What does it say? He will give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We think that the Christian life is being free from temptation and and free from the assaults of sin. No, the the Christian life is an endurance race. Paul says in the passage just before this one, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. That's what he's talking about here. God doesn't save you from temptation, he saves you through enduring temptation, and he gives you that endurance by the grace of his Holy Spirit. But again, we say, Paul, how can you know that? How can you be so sure? What happened when I fell? How do you know that God will work that way for me? And the answer is that that's the way that God always works. It's what he's always done. He brought his people out of Egypt under the cloud and through the sea. He gave them a mediator and a shepherd to lead them through the wilderness. And when they cried to him, he fed them from the heavens and from the rock. He was with them. Christ was with them, he says, making a path in the wilderness, a way of escape when there was no way of escape. And all these things happened as examples for us, so that we can believe that he is with us too. So that we can see that he, by his sacrifice, gives deliverance from the slavery of our sin. That he, by his shepherding care, leads us through our temptations to himself so that we could see that along the way he feeds us with the bread of heaven who came down for us and for our salvation. He quenches our thirst for communion with him by giving us the living waters of his Holy Spirit. All of this, he says, happened so that we would know that he has not left out any blessing that is necessary for our eternal good. The call in this passage Yes is to be watchful, and yes is to exercise self-discipline, and yes to make sure that you're not disqualified. The call is to keep watch over yourself, but the call is to keep watch over yourself by looking to the Lord and trusting in his faithfulness. Knowing that he's with you. Believing that he sent his son to gather you. Having fellowship and and communion with him along the way. That's the promise of this passage. That God is faithful. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us grace to believe it. Believing it, we pray that you would help us to have the grace to live it out, trusting that the Lord is the one who is faithful, casting ourselves on your mercy, proclaiming our weakness and finding your strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.